episode 90 of Offscript with Trish Close, intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today, I have my lovely dear friend, Ashley Myers. Hi. Hello. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited. I forgot to ask you, I ask everybody, like, what's your title these days? Like, what's your title? Um, I feel like probably restaurateur is yeah. like the most accurate title mm-hmm. for me right now. Yeah. Um, that's really what's taking up a lot of our time. So. You've been, but you've had lots of titles over the last just what, like decade really? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, you know, everything from server to manager to consultant to custodian. Yeah. Dishwasher. <laughs> um, mom, of Mama, course. Of course. Yeah. A lot. So right now I'm, I'm kind of leaning on. Um, owner, partner, event manager, and consultant so cool. are kind of where I'm at right now. So cool. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. We're going to talk about that because you and your husband recently um, acquired – a lot of people know you and Dustin, your husband, from The Vine and right. GP. Yes. Um, that's really what kind of brought you guys here. Mm-hmm. Back. Back, thank you. Um, but in the last just few months, uh, you guys are acquiring a few more places in Grants Pass. We kind of exploded. Yeah. You, you really did explode. And we're going to talk about that. But I like to start from the beginning. Okay. Where are you from originally? I was born in Oxnard, California. Okay. <laughs> my parents, who were Oregon natives, were living in um, Port Wainimi. My dad was in the Navy. He was where? Port Wait? Port Wainimi. It's spelled really weird, too. It's like H-U-E-N-E-M-E or something like that. Okay. But just outside of Oxnard, California, in Ventura County, I think. Okay. So we lived in Southern California until I was nine. But the lore, the family lore, is that we're actually fifth-generation Rogue Valley natives. No way. My parents met cruising the strip in Medford when they were 16. Like, this is just home for us. Cruising? The strip. the strip. I think my dad said he used to keep like beer in his in the trunk of whatever car he was driving at that time, and like that's how he picked up my mom. Okay, so do you trick question? Do you know what kind of car your dad had at that time? No, I'm I'm not Dang that into into cars. Mm. I know my mom. My mom <laughs> and my dad met over vehicles. Oh, really? Yeah, my mom was like, "Look at that Jag." Like my dad Ooh. had a Jag. Yeah. And my mom had a, a MG, I believe. I hope I didn't get that wrong. But they were both like, ooh, nice car, nice car. And that's how they Mm. met. So Mm. I just always am wondering. And I do like old classic cars. Yeah. So they met literally cruising. That's the story. Okay. Yeah. It's a good story. At 16? Yeah. They started dating when they were 16 years old and they've been together ever since. That's insane. That's pretty cool. They still like each other? Most days, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. I would say so. That's awesome. And they live across the street from us, so we get uh, probably a closer view than most people. That's Or amazing. we live across the street from them. Right. So. <laughs> so you guys moved back here then when you were younger? Yeah. So at nine, we came back from California. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of right before the riots down there started really kicking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and my parents said they could kind of feel some of that energy. Um, and so they were actually on their way to go. I think my dad had a job lined up in Eugene um, and they stopped in Grants Pass to visit family and just kind of got stuck, hmm. um, picked up another job here and then never left okay. um, as far as living situations go. So who's here on the family side? Is it your dad's side of the family? Uh, it's both, actually. Okay. Both my mom's side of the family and dad's side of the family were here for most of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Everyone's kind of dispersed um, mm-hmm. since then. but So you had grandparents? Grandparents. I knew my great-grandparents, actually, too. Um, we, we were a fairly young family, generationally, have kids in our 20s. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I knew my great-grandparents until I was an adult. Um, my kids are getting to know their great-grandparents also. So That's, it's pretty fun. I cannot put a... 
a, a definition on how special that is. So incredible. And we really foster our kids' relationships with their great-grandparents because mm-hmm. we know how much it means to us. You yeah. know, it's, it's just been huge. So. I had, I knew my great-grandmother on my dad's side. I knew my great-grandparents on my mom's side. Um, and my great-grandmother, I think, passed away when I was maybe in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And then I had my grandparents, all four of them, for yep. a really long time. And mm-hmm. I cannot I, I just there's something so special about that relationship. Big time. I completely agree. And I think getting to know that as an adult, like I think as a kid, as I was only child, only grandchild, only niece on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a kid, I like it was it's kind of a receiving relationship, right? Like you just mm-hmm. receive all that love. But as an adult, especially being the only on that side, mm-hmm. there is such a special relationship with both my aunt and my my grandparents on mm-hmm. my mom's side for having been the only one and Right. Um, you know, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, but those those are really special relationships to have as an adult. And I feel like in your grandparents' eyes, you can do no wrong if you're a grandchild. Mm, I don't know. You could probably ask my grandparents if <laughs> a couple of things wrong, but <laughs> uh, but they love me anyway. Right. I think that's just <laughs> that's it. It's just I don't know. There's there's a very that's a very special relationship to me. And as you know, we've talked a lot about grandparents, and mm. it's just I I don't know. I, I just love the fact that there are children these days who are growing up with grandparents and great grandparents. Oh, that's just so amazing. Um, so you guys got stuck ish. I don't want to say stuck, but right. No, I mean, I think my parents probably at the time as young Mm -hmm. as they were, you know, they had me when they were 22. So they were not even not quite in their thirties or right around like just entered into their thirties when we came back. So I think this, this is one of those valleys where you try to get out of when you're really young, but then you kind of gravitate back when the pull of family, especially Mm -hmm. with your kids, um, comes into play. So, um, we lived here. I mean, they, like I said, they never left. They've lived here ever since then. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't leave until after high school. Okay. So, so you went to Grants Pass High School? I did. Yep. Graduated the year they finished the new buildings. Uh, loved it. Really? I mean, looking back, I loved it. I think maybe I was angsty, just like everybody else. But sure, for sure. What did Dad do here? My dad's done everything. Yeah. Um, everything from car and motorhome sales to mortgages. In fact, coming back um, this last time with Dustin, I like my initial. A lot of my initial relationships were, "Oh, you're Mike Smith's daughter." Nice. Was it like if that anybody listening to that is like a ping? Oh, that's yeah. If they know him, but he has kind of been around the valley a mm-hmm. lot, doing a lot of different things. My mom always. My mom has always been in accounting. Okay. Um, so she's now. Well, CPE. Grants Pass, I mean, it's it's still fairly small-ish, but definitely. But I mean, it's it's a small town where you kind of know you know everybody. Totally, it's totally community. It absolutely is. And in coming back this time, I've been so pleased to reengage with some of the relationships that I actually had from high school mm-hmm. um, with people who did a similar thing, went away to college. Um, I went to Oregon State and then like did some stuff and had fun and then came home um, to raise their kids in this community, mm-hmm. which is really, really cool. OK, so go to Grants Pass High School. Mm-hmm. Uh, you graduate, I'm assuming, because you go to Oregon State. Oregon State. Yep. <clears throat> Wrong <Sorry>. pipe. <coughs> yep. Okay, it happens. Can't talk and drink water at the same time. No, it happens with, to the best of us. Um, so what did you major in? I majored in speech communication and psychology. Okay, what did you want to do with that? Uh, I had no idea. <laughs> I initially went into college thinking I wanted to be a um, like an early childhood 
teacher, mm-hmm. early childhood development teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got like, I think like a lot of people do in college, I got like a couple terms in and I was like, oh, this kind of sucks. I spent a year at RCC and that year was really fun. So post high school, pre going out into the mm-hmm. real world and like still living at home, that yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, going to OSU, I just met some really kindred spirits in mm-hmm. speech comm. Um, I don't think I knew what I wanted to do with it. Um, I think by the end, I wanted to go into speech language pathology. Mm. Um, was thinking about going back for my master's, but then I met my now husband, and that kind of went out the window. You and Dustin met at OSU. We did, yeah, okay. in, our, in our final year of school. Really? Yeah. How'd you meet? I found him at the bars. I mean, that's... Yeah! <laughs> I Actually, the first time I ever saw him, um, he was a server at one of my favorite restaurants. He's been in the restaurant business since he was like 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't get it until after college, but um, I he was our uh, server when I was on a date with another guy. Nice. And um, I remember looking at him and being like, oh my gosh, that's the hottest guy I've ever seen. And um, then I basically chased him around the bars for mm-hmm. a few months where I could find him. And like, I definitely pursued him. When did you lasso him finally? Uh, I think probably the time when we were at, so at, in Corvallis, everybody goes to the same bars every sure. night, you know, like it's, you know, 90s night, at mm-hmm. whatever place. Mm-hmm. So we ended up at this one place and we were dancing and it was 80s night. And he said, and we went outside to get some air and he's like, if you would really like to listen to 80s music, I can put some on my computer at home and we can listen to it like away from this place basically. And it was like, done for after that basically (laughs) so good yeah uh how soon do you guys get married after that actually not for a while um so we were together for a year and a half Mm -hmm. before we got engaged Mm -hmm. um I told him we moved in together six months after we met and I told him that if this worked and we could actually live together that we were going to get married so he knew that (laughs) he knew that I was trying to to rein him in um but then a year and a half after we got together we got engaged and then a year and a half after that we got married nice yeah. And did you guys, what at this point, because you're graduated. Yep. What do you guys want to do with yourselves? We really wanted to travel. Um, so we moved to Portland the year after graduation and mm-hmm. worked a summer there. Um, he was at the Heathman and I was at Papa Hayden, um, two both like really legendary restaurants there. Mm-hmm. I had started my restaurant career when we were in Corvallis. Um, basically, so the year after college, backing up a little bit, I worked for AAA for a year as an mm-hmm. auto travel counselor. I thought I wanted to go into that kind of travel mm-hmm. and I hated it. Yeah. Like I was falling asleep at my desk every day at 3 p.m. Um, and so he brought home, and of course making like just above minimum wage, mm-hmm. um, he brought home a paycheck that was like four times what mine was and we had worked the same amount of hours. And I was like, I I can do what you're doing. So I got a job as a hostess with a college degree at McGrath's Fish House. Within six months I was a server. Within a year I was a server trainer opening new lo- a new location for them. And um, while that was not a great experience um, <laughs> because I basically freaked out, um, it, I was hooked on the restaurant business. You freaked out being a trainer? Um, opening restaurants is really high pressure. Yeah. Um, so I've since done it multiple times, but at the age of 22, new in restaurants, um, I mean, being an only child too, like I was still pretty fragile, I think would be a good way to put it. Um, and not having grown up in restaurants in the same way Dustin did, um, there is a, a layer of thick skin that you sort of have to develop in this business. Totally. Um, and at the time I was still figuring out 
you know, I was still very sensitive and, mm-hmm. and like I said, kind of fragile. And so being in that high pressure environment, you're working, you know, 17 hour days with really limited food supply. I have a very sensitive metabolism. That was really hard for me. It sounds silly in mm-hmm. retrospect, but, um, you know, just the, the grind of it all and like being again, brand new to the system and being responsible for training 40 servers mm-hmm. in a brand new restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically had a panic attack on friends and family night and went home after that. Uh, but that's not unusual. Um, you know, they, they hire more server trainers than they need for those openings. Um, I'm not, ne- this isn't necessarily an extrapolation to all restaurants, but this particular right. situation. Um, so that when someone does crack, they can send them home and they mm-hmm. still have enough to support the system. So mm-hmm. corporate training like that is just really high pressure. So I've talked about this before. I was a hostess and a server at Chili's. <laughs> I, I love Chili's because it's <laughs> incredibly nostalgic for me. I had moved out to Vegas. There was a Chili's opening. I needed a job. I was 16 and I became a hostess. And it was to this day one of my favorite jobs on the planet. That I feel that fits for you, though. I, I feel I like was a good with hostess. your energy, <laughs> well, because you're smart and fun and yeah, that all of that really connects. But so. we had, it was an, brand new, so we had all these corporate trainers in mm-hmm. from out of town yep. and it blew my mind how much goes into opening a new corporate restaurant. It's crazy. Like that. It's a lot of Super stuff. Super crazy. Yeah. Um, so when we went to Portland, then um, I was at Papa Hyden serving. Dustin was at the Heathman. And those were, I think that was a really great summer for us mm-hmm. um, being there. And then we ran into some people that um, had lived in the Virgin Islands. We, so we had mentioned that we wanted to travel. And so we were like kind of gearing ourselves up and saving money to basically backpack and work travel. Lovely. It sound, Yeah, sounds great. Um, so sounds great. Uh, yeah, it does sound great. It's it, you know, again, kind of it's just an interesting thing, right? So we were getting ready to get married. We're our we had a destination wedding in Mexico. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and the summer after that, we we packed up all of our belongings in three bags between the two of us and bought one way tickets to St. John. Woo! That made my stomach drop a little bit. Did it? A one way ticket. So we get off the plane and it's pitch black. Mm-hmm. We only had, we didn't have reserve anything outside as far as living situation. We didn't have anything planned mm-hmm. after the seven days we had reserved at this campground in like yurts, essentially, for okay. lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. So we get off the airplane after essentially 24 hours of travel mm-hmm. and it's pitch black. We grab one of those open air cabs mm-hmm. and we had them take us to a store and we picked up a few supplies, I think like beer and water was basically all we took out there Genius, because we're 25. Right whatever. What else do you need? Exactly. Um, and we get on this open air taxi and we start driving through what sounds like Jurassic Park. I don't know if you've ever been in the jungle in the middle of the night. <laughs> no. So St. John was made a national park. I think I want to say by Bill Clinton. Okay. Um, back in the day. Thanks. Um, and so it's, it's super wild basically, except in like a couple of really small places. Mm-hmm. Only about 3,000 people lived on the island at the time when we were there. And uh, it, the lizards and, and all the other bugs and mm-hmm. little creatures make really loud noises. Right. <laughs> so we're driving through and I was like, I felt like I was in a movie. It was insane. Hmm. So we drive out to this campground. There's no one there like to tell us where to go. We probably wandered around the like entry area for 45 minutes. It was right at the end of hurricane season, which in 
the islands is like a hotbed for mosquitoes and I am a mosquito magnet. Mm -hmm. So by the time we made our way to our tent in the pitch black, because we didn't have, I think we might've dug out a headlamp. Um, but (laughs) we didn't have a flashlight. We didn't have any food. We had water and beer and that was it. And our three bags between the two of us were trekking through, it was pouring down rain, um, trekking through the mud on this dirt road out to our yurt. By the time we got to the tent, I was covered in mosquito bites. I forced my new husband to throw up the mosquito netting that we had purchased just over my bed. I don't even remember whether or not I asked him to put it over his bed. And then I just sat there and cried because we didn't have any food and we just traveled for 24 hours. And I was like, what on earth did we just do? Yeah. I mean, that sounds awesome. (laughs) It was pretty bad. All that sounds really great. Yes. So St. John is part of the islands where let's St. Martin, St. Bar, all those or no? No, that's the Bahamas. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So, um, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, by the way, that's not, don't, yeah, don't I am not, I mean, we're not geography. We could, we could Google it. It sounds yeah. really Googleable. This is why I bring my phone down here now because I like to just <laughs> say random things and right. it's not true. No. So the U.S. Virgin Islands consist of St. John, St. Thomas, and St. Croix. St. Thomas. That's St. Thomas is the one you're of. looking for. That's where yeah. the, the airport is. Yep. It's the smallest of the three U.S. Virgin Islands. Right. Which are located so, in the Caribbean. There we go. There we go. It's teeny tiny. And I forgot to mention the part that we actually had to, we got off the plane on St. Thomas, Mm -hmm. had to get on a ferry, took the boat over to St. John, and then we caught the open air taxi. So there was a little bit more before that. But um, woke up the next day, mosquito bites and all, Mm -hmm. um, tears dried, Mm -hmm. went to go get, there was like one place where you you could get drinking water. Um, And when we walked out and turned left from our cabin, there was this really picturesque, like totally indescribable framed view of the ocean. There was like this beautiful white powdery sand path Mm -hmm. and the most crystal clear turquoise water and like the jungle trees hanging over the top of it. And we were hooked. Mm. Just done. Um, So that made it all worth it. It was all worth it at Mm -hmm. that point. Yeah, it was amazing. And we lived there for a season, which is a little less than a year. Doing what? bartending. Mm -hmm. So um, we figured the one-way tickets were our way of forcing ourselves to do things like find a job and get a house. So three days after that wonderful tent experience, we ran into, I loaned my hairdryer to some girls that I met in the community bathroom where the tents were. And they're like, hey, we're going into town. We have a car. Do you guys want to come? This is why you're nice to people. Yes, this is why you loan the girls in the community bathroom your hairdryer. Less, yeah, especially girls, young girls. This is why you're nice to other <laughs> girls. Yes, don't be a mean girl. Loan them your hairdryer. Mm-hmm. Be nice. Karma. We're right, still sorry. friends to this day. Shut up. Yes. Well, like Facebook friends now, distant, still. but um, we're still in contact. So essentially, I say that word a lot. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, like maybe it's the word a day. Essentially, um, I say essentially a lot and apparently. Apparently. And my husband always makes fun of me because every time I say it, he's like, apparently. Like, he just does this high, dorky voice. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I get it. I'll stop. Anyways, essentially, you can say it as much as you want. Sweet, thanks. Yep, Except that it's being recorded. It's all right. That's not as fun. I say, um, usually after a good story, I'll be like, that's so awesome. I say that constantly. Mm. So you're in good company. It's fine. <laughs> There's no problem with being affirmative. Um, so... We hopped in their car. Again, we don't know these people mm-hmm. at all. And they're from Massachusetts, so they have amazing accents that we mm. instantly fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Um, we were kind of odd ducks as West Coasters um, in the VI. There's a, it's sort of like the East Coast Hawaii. Yep. 
Um, so we hop in the car, we drive through like little herds of donkeys on our way <laughs> into um, Cruise Bay and St. John. And they're like, hey, we just, before we go explore, we just have to go stop at this house that we're going to rent to place a deposit. Turns out they had found this really cool furnished apartment that was like a three bedroom apartment that they were renting with a friend of theirs. And while we were there, we just happened to ask the woman who owned the home if they had any other units. And she was like, oh yeah, we have a, a studio upstairs that you guys can rent fully furnished, all utilities included for at the time, I think it was like 700 bucks a month. And we had saved up so much money. I think we paid like six months rent ahead. No way. Should I stop turning away from the... Um. Yeah, maybe stop turning away from the mic. It's okay. You don't have to get that close. <laughs> don't, Mar- don't Mariah carry it. That's what I say. I will stop turning away. It's okay. Um, so we moved into the apartment upstairs. So that was three days after we got there. We had a place to live in three days, mm-hmm. and we had the jobs by the next day. Um, Serendipitous, is it? Totally. The first place places that we both applied, um, mine being Woody's Seafood Saloon. Look it up if you haven't. It's where the Kenny Chesney video – I can't remember which one – was filmed. Um, I worked at Woody's Seafood Saloon. Woody's. Okay. Woody's. Okay. <laughs> um, still there. Still mm-hmm. same name. Nice. Um, and then Dustin got a job at the bar, like literally across the street. Hmm. So in between shifts, we could like hop back and forth. But we figured anything that happened that quickly and easily was meant to be. So we stayed. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's a decision. Check. Yes. Done. And I got right. to move out of my tent. That's good. Which was a big thing. Yeah. Mosquitoes. Yeah. Yes. So did you guys not want to work at the same place or was it just that's how it happened? You just, you worked there, he worked there. I don't think that was even on our radar at the time. Um, I mean, working together now is just a totally different monster. Mm -hmm. Um, Good monster. But uh, at the time, it was just natural for us to apply at different places. I think Woody's was really well suited for me. Um, and I think the place that he worked was really well gotcha. suited for him also. Was this a thing that people come down to these islands and work for a season? Yes, Is very much so. Okay. Um, there's definitely a large community of what we call expatriates um, who populate the islands that are not local. Um, locals are called West Indians. Yes. Um, and so they... They coexist with the expats who come down from all over the United States or other parts of the world for that matter. But most of the population that we lived and worked with on St. John were from basically Texas East in the Mm. United States, Mm. um, people from all walks of life, but all really kindred spirits, people who came down in a really similar way that we did, Mm -hmm. where it's like all I brought was my backpack and I'm here to live, not here to work. Like everyone who worked worked to support whatever they were doing outside of work, mm-hmm. which is a really different world, I think, than what we have here. I mean, especially if you look at now us owning three restaurants mm-hmm. and or operating three restaurants and, and working as much as we do, which is, you know, between 12 and 50 hours a day. Mm-hmm. There it was, I'm going to walk to the beach because we never had a car there the whole time. Right. I'm going to walk to the beach. I'm going to snorkel. And then I'm going to hit my bartending shift at like five. And then I'll be up until probably five or six in the morning um and then like just yeah and then just well I mean you would close down the bar at you know two and then you'd clean and then you go out for drinks and food with everybody after and then man yeah multiple times I remember walking home at 6 30 or 7 a.m that's insane but you're you said you were living wait help me living to work or working to live 
at that time? I would say working to live. Um, okay. Like, I feel like what we do here in the States is a little more living to work. Um, that, Like, you know, you yes. go to your job and then yeah. when you do go home, it's it's like a smaller part of your life and also maybe less important, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, how much time do we spend at work versus how much time we spend doing the other things that we really love to yeah. do? I'm reading a book right now that's about Virgin Islands and people living there mm. and West Indians, like, all mm-hmm. over it. So, And then you, you're an expat? An expat, yeah. An expat, an expatriate. Correct. Interesting. But the USVI is perfect for people like us because it is a U.S. territory. Right. So we could still do our taxes and we didn't have to get work visas and stuff like that. So yeah. like if we wanted to go to the neighboring British Virgin Islands, we would have had to have gotten work visas to go over mm-hmm. there. And how were you accepted? By the expats? Mm-hmm. Really well. By the West Indians? Um, this is, I think, maybe a little controversial to talk about, but the West Indian men were excessively friendly and West Indian women essentially pretended like we weren't there. Excessively friendly in a bad way? Um, sometimes. I, I think it all depends on how you, again, sort of that, remember that I was maybe a little more delicate than I am now. Looking back, if I, if I was than who I am now, mm-hmm. it would have been less challenging. Mm-hmm. But what it really was was a completely different culture with totally different social norms. So the way that they interacted, the West Indian men interacted with women was just totally different than what I was used to. Mm -hmm. So I was married, but I was working a job where you kind of pretend to be single or, you know, that like bartending thing where you're like available but not available at the same time. If you want that money. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the same goes for Dustin. Well, exactly. There are pictures of body shots all over the place you know it just it was that kind of life down there sounds fantastic it i was pretty incredible body shots on you or dustin or both just people oh people doing body <laughs> people shots. doing body shots and as bartenders in in that environment we were expected to be part of the party yeah. like in oregon you can't um serve alcohol and also be intoxicated in a place like the Virgin Islands, you're expected to be intoxicated well. You're, sp- you're expected to drink and work. Yeah. It feels a little bit like I'm lifting a veil, but that that really is what it's like down there. I mean, that's the truth, right? And it's part of the vacation, right? These people come down to have a good time. And so you are throwing a party and giving them, you know, the time of their lives. It mm-hmm. is really memorable and a really incredibly fun experience. As a worker there, that's part of what you do. I will tell you this. No one, in my opinion, in a restaurant, no one is more intriguing than, to me than the bartender or the sommelier, for instance. Can I, I a, ask why? Uh, because they're, I think with a bartender, it's like they have a secret. Why? They are, they have the key to all of these wonderful things behind them. And, <laughs> and they're okay. literally right in front of you mm-hmm. making your cocktail and your wine, especially if you're sitting at the bar, which I love sitting at a cool bar and watching someone make my drink. I think And it's a really great bartender thing. can create an experience like what you're talking about I, like it's pretty apparent that you've encountered some great bartenders great. in your explorations that can take you on a journey with what they have mm-hmm. um at the time you know in a bar like that it was all about like blending seven different liquors together and slinging as many Coors Lights as I could literally open mm-hmm. in like an hour mm-hmm. you know like it was Totally different than what I do now and totally different yeah. than what I did in consecutive years. Right. So I just think there's something about um, – and it's and I think why I say they have a secret is because I'm very curious. I like to say I'm obnoxiously mm-hmm. curious. When I they're making their drink in front of me, I'm like, what's that? 
what are you doing with that? And what's that? <laughs> and why are you mixing it with that? Because yeah. I'm curious. And then a really good bartender will make you your drink and put it in front of you. And then they'll do a little something and they'll go, here, taste this. Mm-hmm. And they teach me something. And mm-hmm. that's why I like the bartenders. The same with sommeliers. They teach me something every time I see one do their thing. And I think what you're sensing in that is that people, especially, you know, experienced adult bartenders or sommeliers, these are people who are incredibly passionate about their craft. 100%. Um, and so when you find those really good nuggets, um, you're experiencing that passion mm-hmm. in a way that a lot of other individuals in different types of professions don't get to express. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's where kind of the live to work, work to live conversation also comes yep. back, right? Because if uh, the only reason that I can work anywhere from 12 to 17 hours a day is because I'm really passionate about hospitality, mm-hmm. really passionate about why this needs to exist in our world. And it's about creating those connections, not necessarily always teaching people things, but providing experiences that they're not going to get anywhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah, that's a connection. Right. And and some of the some of the bartenders who have taught me some incredible things and have shared things with me, I remember them. I know what they look like. I know the bar that I was in. Mm-hmm. I know the drink I had because totally. it was an experience. Yes. At Woody's, though, this is, <laughs> this is about, I mean, this is a vacation spot for people. Yeah. So it's, like you said, it's a party. They're there to have fun. They're not really there to be like, why are you, you know, yeah. mixing this. They don't really care. Aged rum with. No. Yeah. No. Uh, they don't care about that part. They care that, like, what's your story? Why are you here? Like, and a lot of the people that visited wanted so much to do what we had done, to -hmm. sell everything, to disappear, to to go and live this lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, So you you kind of get conditioned, and that was my first real bartending gig. You get conditioned to tell your story in a in a different way. Mm -hmm. I just, but what it also taught me was that it's super easy to just give it all up, walk away, and go do something else. Mm -hmm. I mean, we fit right in. No one, I mean, our family missed us, but there was nothing that was happening that that we missed out of, Mm -hmm. you know, or missed out on. Do you think that's an experience you can only do in your 20s? Mm -mm. No. I actually, you know, I think when you put yourself out in the world as much as we have, you kind of have to discuss your worst case scenario. So what happens if after all of these things that we've done, something doesn't work? You know, when you're out over your skis, what's that risk? Mm-hmm. And then what's your worst case scenario? What what are we going to do if everything falls apart tomorrow? And we often hearken back to that. I would love to, We we still to this day, envision ourselves owning a sailboat, which was a plan. So when we were in the islands, we kind of caught the sailing bug. Um, mm-hmm. I found out I was pregnant, actually, on a sailboat because um, I was barfing. But <laughs> <laughs> that must be why. That <laughs> must be why. Um, and so, like, we caught the sailing bug and decided that we actually wanted to live on a sailboat. Mm-hmm. I think that we push ourselves into a space where we think that we can't get away. Once we're so enmeshed in the cultures or in our communities where we're like, oh, well, I can't leave my job or I can't leave my family. Well, what what if you just decided to do it anyway? Mm-hmm. You know, what? why can't you? Mm-hmm. Why can't you sell all your stuff? Why can't you put it all in storage and take a break? There's really, and it, I think that's one of the great things about the restaurant business though too, is there's always something new around the corner. It's, it's a really marketable skill. I'm sure my mom cringed when I went into restaurants after getting my college degree, but there's always something else. Mm-hmm. There's always somewhere you're needed. Um, so you can just pick up and move somewhere else and do something different, which is what we did after St. John. Okay. Which was? Uh, we moved to Lake Placid, New York. Okay. Pregnant, 
3,000 miles away from my family in a place where we moved, again, same three bags of clothing, right? Mm -hmm. Which in the Virgin Islands where it doesn't get below 70 Mm -hmm. is tank tops and tiny Mm -hmm. shorts. Mm -hmm. Um, It snowed three days after we arrived on like May 31st, like a gigantic like quarter size snowflakes. Mm. Um, Moved there, worked in restaurants. I quit restaurants and did retail for a little while while I was pregnant. Um, And we were going to stay. Um, made some really great connections on that side of the world and we're talking about maybe opening a restaurant with some folks that we knew. And uh, I, again, like just got called back home kind of, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm so far away from my family, getting ready to have a baby for the first time in a cabin that had carpet in the bathroom. And I just, I, (laughs) in a place where it gets to be like 25 degrees below zero and sometimes your car won't start. So I, I kind of put the kibosh on that and was like, we need to come home. Are you homesick too? Um, I think fearful more than homesick. Okay. Um, Dustin, the, the economy in Lake Placid wasn't amazing at the time um, in the sense that it's a really, again, another small community. Mm-hmm. And Dustin was working two or three jobs just to yeah. keep us going. And I was picturing being in this cabin. I mean, our eldest son was born in November. So it would have been in the middle of the winter. I would have been all by myself. Um, We had a Toyota Corolla at the time. Like, how is he going to drive around in the snow? Yeah. And what if something happens to me and the baby? And, like, the anxieties that you have, I think, as a first-time mom versus a second-time mom. Like, you know, just Mm -hmm. uh, I was so afraid, I think, that something would happen. And, I, you know, I I wanted to be next to my mom, who is one of my best friends, you know. So my my person. She's Mm -hmm. my person. So you guys left. We left. Okay. And you go back to Grants Pass? We came back to Medford, actually. Medford. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, my family connections put us in contact uh, with the owners of Four Daughters. Um, and Dustin had a bartending job at Four Daughters when we came back. Um, so we were there. And I didn't know he worked at Four Daughters. About six or eight months in, he took a management position there. So wow. he was GM and I was bartending there. That's the first time we worked together. Okay. Okay. Um, and then that's also where we got pregnant and had our second son. Okay. So, so uh, is Dustin from Oregon? No. I think he likes to say he's from all over. Mm. Um, but, I mean, he's lived in Washington and Reno and, like, they okay. Portland. And they, they moved around a lot. He graduated from Tigard High. Okay. Okay. So does he consider, then, Oregon kind of like home or – I think now in now some ways does. because this is probably one of the places we've lived the longest okay. as adults. That makes sense. You know? Yeah. So um, I think Dustin's unique in the sense that he considers home wherever his family is. Mm. Um, and so as our families have kind of scattered and then come together and, and gone kind of back and forth with that, I think that's what he calls home. Okay. So you guys are working at Four Daughters together. Mm-hmm. Where did this idea of having a restaurant come about? So we actually went away for a while after that. So we were at three daughters for about three years, mm-hmm. four daughters, excuse me, for mm-hmm. three years. Um, and about six weeks after Race was born, that relationship dissolved. And um, Dustin went down to visit his father in Walnut Creek, California, which okay. is in the East Bay. Yeah. And um, he was like, hey, can you send me a copy of my resume? And we did the same thing we picked up and left I mean he had a job before I moved down there with our two sons but I basically relied on our family to pack us up and wow. and move down what was the job on that creek um he was a bartender at a spot called vaudeville in walnut creek okay uh, which is a wine bar so he really really loves 
the restaurant world. Mm-hmm. Yes, he, he does. I mean, and you, I've heard you get bitten by it. Like you just, you get bitten by, by restaurants and bartending and cooking and serving and chefing and you just. Yeah. I've been, I've th- been thinking about that a lot lately. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we doing all of this and, and how do we, how do we keep coming back to this space? And I think it has a lot to do, I mean, with the hospitality, like we talked about, um, and really creating those really great experiences for people. But I know for me, and I, I think he would echo this a little bit, that there's this really incredible gratification that comes along with the energy mm. that's in restaurants. Um, it, it feeds you in the same way you feed it. And, you know, when you have a restaurant that's running even reasonably well, it doesn't have to be, like, amazing, it, it just has this incredible power. Mm-hmm. And doing something well in a space where people can see it mm-hmm. is I think also something that's really gratifying. And then affecting others is kind of, I would say, a way that he would describe how he really enjoys the restaurant yeah. business. Be- I think you also, it's, you have to really like stress. I mean, you have to feed off of high stress at times. Yeah. Yes. Like th- there's an we adrenaline. Must. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. when you've got, you know, as a server, I know when I've had like, I have eight tables and they all get sat for the most part at the same time mm-hmm. and you have a bazillion things going on in your head. It's crazy stressful at the time, but then you look back when it's all done and you're like, oh, you feel like Wonder Woman. Totally. And I think that it's also a, there's an infinite learning possibility in restaurants. I mean, so, you know, we're servers, we're bartenders, we're server trainers, we're dishwashers, we're bussers, we're doing all of this stuff. And so what's the next step? You know, like he tried to get out of the business a little bit um, when we were in the Bay and I was working in San Francisco and Oakland um, and just loving it. Mm -hmm. And he thought about getting out and it was a grind and, and he just didn't love it in the same way. And so we got word that there was a restaurant for sale in our hometown and was like, let's just look at the numbers just sort of out of respect for our family. And it turned out that it was right around the corner from the house I grew up when grew up in and that there was a house across the street um, that was open for us to rent. And so we jumped on it. Um, but that infinite, that was the next step for us, right? That mm-hmm. infinite learning possibility. You can only learn so many things as a server and then eventually you kind of then then you go on to the next thing you're bartending or you're managing and sure. then that was ownership was the next step for us how long were you in the bay area three years three years mm-hmm. okay and he was working at the same place or did he hop around he was at vaudeville the whole time okay um i hopped around a little bit more i was at like a little greek spot and then i went down into jack london square in oakland um mm-hmm. at foragers which is a company that i hold very dear to my heart and then um, moved into San Francisco to work at a steak lounge, um, serving incredible product. And that's where I caught my wine bug. And then um, back out and op- helped Forge open a couple establishments, one in Phoenix and one in Napa. Mm. Um, and then that's when we kind of decided to come back. Okay. So this restaurant, it's in it's uh, it's in the Albertsons Shopping Center, which sounds very unglamorous when you t- when we talk well, about it like that, but, but it's, it's true. But it's it paints a it's picture. kind of at the end of a strip mall, yes, essentially. Um, and you guys are wanting to crunch the numbers, really, just because you're like, we owe it to our family to at least look at this. Yeah, because we were also looking at a restaurant on St. John at the time. Really? Yes. Wow. So that was a big diverging path. I'd say so. Yeah. But we also had two kids under the age of five. Mm-hmm. 
And a big factor for us was how do we as because we were looking at, okay, you know, Dustin would cook and I would manage or we would find a cook and Dustin would manage and I would be with the kids and we would have to homeschool because it was on the other side of the island from the school. Um, yeah. And so just thinking about all of those logistical pieces, we finally got to the point where, you know, having my parents close and we had I've always been really close with my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big factor in that. And also the numbers at the the Grants Pass establishment were better than the ones um, in the VI. So that was okay. a part of it, too. When do you open the vine? We took over the vine, so it was took an existing. Over. Yeah, it, it oh, had been ex- it had been existing for about five years. Okay, um, April first of twenty fifteen is wow. when we took over the vine. Did you change a lot of things? Not at first. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal of purchasing an existing restaurant was to sort of ride the wave. You know, we mm-hmm. wanted it to be able to to do its own thing, and we're not necessarily concept people. We're um, streamlining people, so we go in and we look at the system and figure out where its strengths and weaknesses are. And this is in hindsight, of course. Um, and then just make those tweaks and adjustments. Um, you know, we cut down the menu a lot when we first started. And just really focusing on what the restaurant was already good at mm-hmm. so that we could maximize on that. Instead of, I, I think a mistake a lot of restaurateurs make is to try to do everything. Yeah. And so for us, it was really about honing in on what works well and providing an exceptional product. What was working really well at the Vine? At that point, they were trying to do, like, pizzas and burgers and, and um, like, there was all kinds of, like, hot wings on the appetizer menu and stuff. It, just that typical sort yeah. of, like, really spread out. So we got rid of the pizza oven. Pizzas took, like, 25 minutes, and, mm-hmm. and it, which is a long time <laughs> in the restaurant world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, got rid of the pizzas. The pastas were working really well, so we focused on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kept the burgers because we found that we could make a pretty exceptional product with that. And then um, just fresh things, you know, mm-hmm. great salads, great pastas, and yeah. like really honing in on kind of that home-cooked, from-scratch vibe. For sure. I remember when I first met you guys, I think it was for a West Coast Flavors. Um, was it that or was it the time that you guys came in for dinner? Nope. It was West Coast Flavors okay. because mutual we have mutual friends in yes. Chris and Danny Dennett, mm-hmm. Chris who owns Elements and Beer Works. Um, and she actually Shout suggest- out. Love you guys. Yeah. Love you lots. <laughs> she actually suggested that we have you guys on West Coast Flavors. And I was like, great. And I think at the time, I don't remember what year it was, but you guys were like doing everything at the restaurant. Like mm-hmm. Dustin was like baking bread and you guys had a garden and you were- just going. Oh, yeah, we had the farm the for farm. about a year. Yeah, which he ah. said was insane. It was super insane. I mean, if you can imagine. So we initially had it planted by someone, and that was supposed to be our farm manager, but then it was not financially solvent mm-hmm. um, to have someone out there managing it all the time. And we hit harvest, and we're like, oh, we'll just harvest it ourselves, mm-hmm. which is super naive. Like mm-hmm. anyone out there who runs farms could say. Um, but we had invested a lot in it at the time. And so we... We have this half acre that we're cultivating and it probably had 50 different types of tomatoes and like four different types of beans and potatoes and melons and zucchini. And you know zucchini, right? Like as a, as a home, you Mm -hmm. need like a single zucchini plant Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, we probably had 20. (laughs) So like, how do you get out? So we're going out to the farm at like 4.35 AM with our two kids who (laughs) are like six and eight at the time. Right. And they hate it. Yeah. Hate it. Of like, course. why am I getting out of bed at 4.30 in the morning of when course. I have to go to school later? And this is torture. Don't, nobody turn me in, please. Um, but, you know, they, 
it was good hard work for them, but gathering all of this produce. And then another thing you don't think about is how do you process it, right? Yeah. Produce from a farm is dirty. Yeah. So then like we would, I have these awesome pictures from that time where we would go out and harvest and it would fill our entire dry storage. And our problem was just as much that like we needed a lot of products to operate. Yeah. We make all of our sauces and spice blends in house. Like it's, it's a, it's a project, right? (laughs) But we didn't have the space to store the vegetables. And then how do you make sure they get processed before they go bad? And so it was like, I mean, we were literally taking, you know, those beautiful heirloom tomatoes that you have on caprese salad. Yes. So we were taking those and turning them into tomato sauce because we had so many that we couldn't put them on caprese's fast enough. Um, so it was, it was an incredible learning experience. But the, the last time, thing you want, you don't want them to go bad. So right. So you, you have to do something. Do so something. we like froze a lot of sauces and stuff like that. But anyway, I remember at the end of harvest, the beans were going nuts. We had like three rows of beans and in a half acre, a row is big. Is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of beans. So we were literally just yanking up the bean plants and just picking off like whatever beans we wanted and throwing them in a bucket and then throwing the bean plants to the side because yeah. it was, it was incredible. I, I, love the idea um but it was just a really challenging process for us and running the restaurant so it's like you know 4 30 or 5 o'clock harvest mm-hmm. then you're taking all the products in and you're processing all day long while you're also trying to prep for the restaurant and run lunch and dinner we're open yeah. from you know 11 to 9 so i was just gonna say i mean it's a second job essentially when you have a farm yeah yes yeah. and that at a farm of that size really needed more than what we were able to give right. it so so I just remembered, I actually, we did West Coast Flavors twice because I want to say the first time we did West Coast Flavors, you were pregnant. Possibly. And then the second time we did West Coast Flavors, you were not. Yeah. And then I remember you telling me about your kids and you were like, yeah, they're four and eight. And I'm like, wait, something's not adding up. <laughs> yeah. And I just remember looking at you really funny, and I'm like, wait, aren't your kid? And this comes back to being obnoxiously curious. Right. And you said, oh, I was a surrogate. Yeah. How did that happen? So when we were in college, Mm -hmm. we had these very dear friends. Um, They were a gay couple. And one day, we used to love to go to the Willamette Valley Vineyards uh, Grape Stomp, which, by the way, we need to do sometime. If you you guys haven't done it, it's amazing. So we did the Grape Stomp for a couple years in a row with them. And one year at Grape Stomp, they were like, we kind of want to have kids, but we'd have to get a surrogate. Mm -hmm. And the idea had never occurred to me at the time. And I was like, I would totally do that. Ronan was like six months old. I had had an amazing pregnancy. I was a natural born pregnant woman. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I never feel more feminine than when I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I kind of fell in love with the idea and I entertained it for a little while. And then our friendship, like, you know, they moved and, and we just didn't spend as much time together. And so that never came to fruition, but it always was kind of in the back of my mind. And um, then when we moved to back to Grants Pass and we had this level of stability in our lives and we had the restaurant and and my role at the restaurant um, has always been front of house focused. So we have a lot of flexibility and I wasn't relying on an employer to worry about whether or not I was going sure. to be pregnant and stuff. So I started revisiting the idea and I applied to one agency and it wasn't a good fit. Um, they're just the application process. It, it's weird how life happens. Like that just wasn't the place I needed to go. And then um, I applied to Northwest Surrogacy Center and ended up, I went all the way through the process and ended up being matched with this incredible couple um, 
and for their own privacy. I don't want to talk too much about them, sure. but they are foreign, um, also a gay couple, and um, they're like brothers to me now. Um, but I basically just went to the agency and I was like, I want to have a baby for someone. And they ask you all of these insane questions and you go through a million blood tests and um, psychological evaluations. Yeah. Um, you can't be it, cray cray. You cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, or have substance abuse issues, which yeah. I mean, obviously they overlooked that one for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they uh, even your partner has to go through a psychological evaluation. Like they really dig into your did? world. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, to make sure your motivations are not primarily financial, to make mm-hmm. sure that you your family's involved to make, you know, so there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, and the company that I worked with was really great about choosing their mm-hmm. people. And so then you go into this process and you've given them all of your information. You say, these are the type of people that I want to be a surrogate for. Mm-hmm. You know, I was open to a lot. I was open to international couples. I was open to having twins. I was op- like, it just, it's, I was, I just wanted to give someone a baby. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting matched with this incredible couple. Like they sent me the profile and I was like, they're not real. This is a joke. Um, and we had a Skype meeting. Mm -hmm. And so essentially then once you get matched, you have like a meeting and then you have 24 hours to decide whether or not you want to be matched with these people. Of course, we both said yes. Mm -hmm. And we ended up transferring two embryos, one little girl embryo and one little boy embryo. And what was really cool is they do this. And have I told you this part of it? I don't think so. Where they do this incredible process. It's science is amazing. Um, where they take sperm from both of the dads Mm -hmm. in two different Mm-hmm. sets mm-hmm. and they there was a different egg donor there's no none of my dna in this little guy because that was my next question right okay. so um i was essentially the incubator right um what they call a gestational surrogate okay um and so the they take their egg donors eggs and they fertilize they divide them into two piles basically this is mm-hmm. like the least scientific explanation of okay. this process <laughs> sounds super scientific to <laughs> yes. me two big old piles, two of, big eggs. Old piles of eggs <laughs> And uh, so they fertilize those two sets of eggs with the two different dad's sperm. And then they take the embryos that come from that process, the fertilized embryos, and they transfer one embryo from each father into the surrogate. Okay. So theoretically, those if those two embryos were to go full term, they would be related to each other via the egg donor, and one of each of them would be related to each of the two surrogate fathers. Crazy. So you could have had twins? I could have had twins, okay, yes. Okay, but you didn't. We didn't. Um, uh, little boy embryo stuck around. Little girl embryo did not. Okay. Um, the little boy was just meant to be. Well, and I gave birth to two boys, so we've just decided that maybe my uterus yeah. is hostile yeah. towards baby girls. I don't know. <laughs> I've always been kind of a guy's girl anyway. <laughs> oh, that's going to be my favorite line of this podcast. What? My uterus is hostile to baby girls. Will you put that in the title? I will. I will. I will. I've been thinking about that. Like, so, where does that go? But this wasn't the same gay couple that you you knew in college. This no. is a this is a, a foreign a, a foreign gay a foreign couple. I did not meet them until transfer day. Who wanted? Wow. Who wanted a baby? Yeah. Okay. And so we interact this whole time. Yeah. But yeah. And there's different. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's different uh, surrogates where it could be it could be your DNA. Yes. Okay. Which is, I think, the way most people think about surrogacy. So, like, when I say I was a surrogate, people are like, oh, my gosh, how could you give up your baby? Well, he wasn't my baby. 
he was someone else's baby from the beginning and I entered into this process mm -hmm. because I wanted to give someone a baby yeah. from the e very beginning. Even though he's not, wasn't your baby, was there anything after the fact? So I had, I described the sensation of dropping them off at the airport. So of course we developed this really incredible bond, mm -hmm. all of us. I mean, the, both of the dads were in the delivery room um, with us. Uh, there are pictures, like literally as soon as he was birthed, he was on one of the dad's chests, like before they'd even cut the umbilical cord. Like mm -hmm. it was an incredible process and they, and they got to know my family. They lived with us for almost a month mm -hmm. before he was born. So we had created this bond all together. It wasn't even really just about he and I. Um, I feel very fortunate also because due to passport regulations, they had to be in the country for three weeks after he was born. Oh. So we yeah. had a lot of time to bond and they would bring him over all the time for me to feed him. And, yeah. um, you know, we, we just really connected. So yeah. I got to spend some time with him, which was great. And I, th I think that that's something that if they had just disappeared, I would have really missed. Mm -hmm. um, when I dropped them off at the airport, I had this really strange sensation of being like a mama cat that had accidentally left one of her baby cats in the forest. Even though logically I knew that he was going to be very well cared for, if not better, because mm -hmm. he's the only child of two parents that have basically invested their life savings mm -hmm. in creating this life. Um, I just, I, it wasn't so much a sadness for me as it was like, you know, whether you like forget your purse somewhere mm -hmm. or like you can't find your phone. Mm -hmm. It's the, it, that's, that breaks it down really far, but that's the closest I can describe that sensation mm -hmm. to anyone who's never felt it. Um, it's almost like a, <gasps> I'm forgetting something yeah. or I've lost something. Yeah. Um, and so, but once they sort of settled into their lives and we continue to communicate, I still get pictures at least twice a week. Um, it's been three years. Um, they have visited mm -hmm. um, it. There, I the best way I can describe how I feel now is that they are like brothers to me, and he is like a nephew. I'm like the benevolent aunt or like mm -hmm. the fairy god aunt mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. um, and he, he knows who I am, and and he also knows who his egg donor is, and they have also connected and visited, and mm. and she and I know who each other are as well. That's amazing. It's really cool. That it's almost really, really makes cool. me like cry a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm I met them. Yes, I met all three of them. Yeah, and he is adorable he's totally adorable and i can't take any credit for that <laughs> but, but well, you can actually a little of the nutrition piece perhaps but um you know i think that if you look at it I mean, some people think of it as like oh my gosh i could never do that i could never give up something that like was that close to me and when it's your kid i think that that's a little bit different but because i entered in this knowing and we all as a family entered mm -hmm. into this knowing what it was going to be i mean one of the boys asked me at one point like do we get to name the baby and i was like no but you can name a goldfish whatever <laughs> name you want to name the baby that'd be fun <laughs> um what we ended up with was yeah. a a really life enriching experience mm -hmm. my children get a, a cultural experience that they never would have mm -hmm. they get to know these people mm -hmm in a totally different way. And and what it's actually a really pure love, in my opinion. It's, yeah. It sounds strange, but um, when you have, like it was such a magical experience that I can't really picture it going any better than it did. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're connected to these people forever. And so my kids get extra. You, you, also, you also get this, um, you have taught your kids what sacrifice looks like. What selflessness looks like, yeah. I think. Because it really, it, I think you, we as surrogates, um, do benefit from it like there's an incredible heart factor yeah um but when you think about like i what i didn't think about until after he was born was that i wasn't just creating parents i was creating then this will make me cry 
aunts and uncles. I was creating grandmas and grandpas. Mm. I, I helped build a family, a multi-generational family, and, and to people who so wanted to love this baby. Mm. And when I saw, we kind of surprised their families by not telling them that we were going in to be induced. And, and they like sort of jokingly like didn't show everyone and then they panned over to the baby and they panned over to me. And I didn't even know what they were saying because it was in a different language, but like just the emotion and the pure joy and love that came through that process is just like totally indescribable. Because mm-hmm. I mean, could they have adopted? Sure, but this is what they wanted to do. Right. And you were a piece of that puzzle. Totally. That's forever. Amazing. It's crazy. Forever. Forever. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful story. I've heard the, the I've heard the, like the appendix of that story. I've heard mm, like came, a little bit, but I haven't heard bit. all of that. That's pretty amazing. And they've asked us to do it again. Eight. To have a little girl because they do have still some embryos on ice. Um, we're still we're on hold. I mean, how can you run three restaurants and be pregnant? Well, let's talk about three restaurants. <laughs> you guys are you guys are crazy right now. And before we get to that, we do have to talk about um, uh, Sante Foundation. Yeah, and there's some life in there. There's a ton of life in there. Yeah. You actually, there was a position opened up, was that two years ago? Yep, okay. right around there. It was, uh, tell me, it was like culinary officer? Yeah, so the official term is event officer within the Asante Foundation, which for those of us that don't know is a fundraising agency of the Asante Health System um, mm-hmm. here in Southern Oregon. It's nine counties. Um, so the, the fundraising agent is just a group of individuals whose sole purpose is to raise funds for what is a nonprofit organization. Right. And the biggest fundraiser for Asante is Oregon, Oregon Wine Experience. Okay. So I was presented with this incredible career opportunity where they're like, oh, you get to basically help throw this gigantic party and focus on food, which mm-hmm. obviously we're really into at yep. this stage of the game. And wine, which I was also really into at this stage of the game. So pursuing my um, sommelier certification and uh, really looking into what that looks like for us as a family. And yeah. It was incredible. And I would also say this job really tapped into your ridiculous organizational skills, right? It was really fun to explore. It, it, like in, the, in restaurants, you are a little more reactionary. Mm-hmm. You know, you you don't I don't think you always realize how many resources you have at your disposal because they're constantly being taken up by everything that needs to happen in this moment, whether it's a staff challenge or a, a guest challenge, you know, like you're just you're always just filling in those holes and like, OK, here's another problem. How do we solve it? Here's another problem. How do we solve it? And it's very it's very fast. Um, what my position with the foundation allowed me to do was settle and look at a way bigger picture and figure out how I could help build that picture and help mm-hmm. make it more efficient. And mm-hmm. so um, I did find some aptitude for organization and efficiency and 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 that was a really fun process. So it wasn't just about food and wine, it was also about how mm-hmm. to help make this organization a better place. You get high off of that stuff though. Dude, I kind of nerd out. Yeah, <laughs> not kind of. The, you're the, you and probably our other dear friend are easily Yes, the only two people in my life who we nerd out over planners. Dude. Yes, and yeah. notebooks. Yeah, and like how many planners have we been through <laughs> as a team? Yes. <laughs> like, have you seen this one? Have you seen this planner? <laughs> and I told you years ago, we should, the three of us, should create our own planner. Because right. I know what I want in a planner. You know what you want in a planner. Carrie Powell knows what she wants in a planner. We also nerd out over pens. 
Mm-hmm. And you introduced me to the erasable pens. Dude, the friction pens. Can't if you guys back. don't have <laughs> if you don't have one, pick it up right now. Yeah. You can find it on Amazon. Yeah. Game changers. Absolutely. Which is so funny to think about things like that, but like the world is a crazy place. And when you can find those little mm-hmm. bits of joy, like mm-hmm. that's that's your jam, right? Well, and when we're we're all on this, on our, our on, phone. Which you're pointing at your phone right now. Yes. Yeah. And it's and everybody can t- kind of put appointments and stuff in here. I don't do this. Like I need I need a piece of paper in mm-hmm. front of me with a calendar and dates and times. I and I tried to go all on my phone digital. I couldn't do it. I've I when I tried to do that, I felt like I was just it, I couldn't get a grasp on it. Same. I think that that's a thing for us though as a generation. Like it's sort of we're in that transitional phase where we have to learn how to manage both mm-hmm. pieces. Um, and that was another really great piece that I learned at the foundation too, is because it's a little more digital but there's still that analog portion and, and just really digging into how we as organizations manage mm-hmm. that crossover. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I think those are great skills to learn, but um, I kind of lost where I was. Oh, I was thinking when you brought up your phone, I was thinking about how much that connects to also that hospitality piece that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think what Oregon wine experience kind of is too. Like how do we pull out of that and really just be together? I think that's what I think part mm-hmm. of why I'm addicted to hospitality is mm-hmm. because of that that need to connect yeah. in a totally different way. But even you you see in big events and big festivals, they want you to connect. They want you essentially, there's that word again, on your phone, <laughs> taking a picture, putting it on Instagram, and then tagging OWE. I think there's a part of that, but I, I hope that we as a culture don't ever lose that ability to be in mm-hmm. the moment. Same. Because it's so much, I mean, you're there. It's mm-hmm. so much better to be there. Yeah. Like looking at pictures doesn't even remotely do justice to the amount of energies that in that energy that is in that space. Like the tears that come to your eyes when somebody spends sixteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars on a labradoodle oh for children's health. Like yeah. how do you how do you surpass that? Right. You know, I mean the wine is great and the food is wonderful, mm-hmm. but but how do you how do you get any better than people just being generous? And at the same exact time, the Labradoodle goes up for that amount of money on that stage are children who have benefited from a local hospital and the Children's Miracle Network. It's pretty incredible. And they're like, oh, that money's for the next kid who's going to come along. It's just, it, yeah, it's a pretty amazing, I don't want to say pretty amazing, it's an incredible event. It really is. And to be... To have the opportunity to be a part of the team that helps make those experiences enhanced, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't do the fundraising. I'm not there to to make sure that that Labradoodle sells. I'm mm-hmm. there to make sure that while you're enjoying yourself, your those that sort of um, base need to eat and drink becomes an enhanced mm-hmm. version of of what you actually need, so that your overall world mm-hmm. your energy is like way higher and you can yeah. get to those other places of philanthropy stimulus overload totally it it's absolutely good. is especially with all those people yeah all the people and all the wine holy cow so much wine you were working at asante when these opportunities these restaurant opportunities came up yes um did these come from dustin so my husband has a really interesting ability to just sort of put out there in the world that he's ready for something, and then it just arrives. It sounds like it. <laughs> so he had always wanted more than one establishment. And we, okay. when we organized the vine, we, you know, we made choices like, you know, when we purchased our point of sale system, like one that would handle multiple locations. Okay. So when we basically had two opportunities that I said basically instead of essentially. Good. Um, nice work. <laughs> 
<laughs> that also essentially also needs to be in the title. I mean, <laughs> um, mm. so uh, the two opportunities came up at the same time. So we pursued both, not knowing whether either of them would pan out. Mm-hmm. And when both of them did, it was sort of this overwhelming, like, oh crap! Like now, <laughs> now I have to make a decision. Now what do I do? Now what do I do? And I think that. I mean, when you get married, he he and I have been together for 15 years now. You choose your person. Mm -hmm. So I loved my job at the foundation. I Mm -hmm. loved my space within OWE, and there was incredible possibility there. But when your person is like, I I don't know that I could do this without you, and not in a coercive way in any way. I was ready. But um, it's just a totally different world. So he and I are back in it together, Mm -hmm. and and we thought that maybe – we would be able to spend more time together. But with three locations, one of us is usually not where the yeah. other is. Well, and you really did come at a crossroads. I mean, this was a this was more than difficult, the decision. It was hugely difficult, yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think a lot of people find themselves in that in that decision. But then as soon as you made it mm-hmm. and you went for it, it was like, whew. It was great. And then the other thing that I found is that, um, so I'm now contracted with the foundation to still help with Oregon mm-hmm. Wine Experience this year. And they've um, replaced or they filled my position with a really incredible individual um, who I think may even be better at this than I was in some ways, you know. And so what we have is this really cool process where I get to help train him and give him everything that we've helped develop mm-hmm. over the past year and a half. And then also be there to help augment the whole system. And and that's a really cool opportunity. Yeah. So I get to be with my people, be with my person, and, and build this incredible dream that we've always had together, but then also help this organization that I've come to love so dearly mm-hmm. um, in a totally different way. And sometimes when you close a door and you're like, maybe I'm not the right person for this position when I left the foundation, I think that some really beautiful things have come out of it, even though it was a little painful. Yeah. Gosh, isn't that a metaphor yeah. for life? Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, that's uh, – Yeah. That's life right there. Totally. Um, you guys still have the vine. We do. Uh, but you also have two other places right now. We Lo- do. A lot of work happening right now. A lot of work. Yeah. But fun work. Yeah. So it's enjoyable. There's another vine, right? We're calling it the Vine on Par, okay. um, which is the restaurant and event space within the Grants Pass Golf Club out in Grants Pass nice. on your way out of town. And that's a location, well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's going to be some good events at this location. I think it's going to be really fun. Yeah. Um, it's a really incredible space with, you know, panoramic windows, and it's been sort of forgotten by the community, but we're really excited to be there and really engage and help take it to the next level. Okay. So for businesses out there who were like, where can we go and have this event? Mm-hmm. You're like, hello. 130-person yep. capacity in that space. 130 Okay. Mm-hmm. Plus outdoor space. So okay. that's just what we can host indoors. Okay. And Dustin's still cooking? Not anymore. He's not? Only when he has to. Okay. Um, he was always a front of house guy. Yeah. Um, the back of house came as out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, he just happened to be really good He's at so it. so good at it. <laughs> He's so good he at it. He's pretty great at it. He made, I don't know if it's still on the menu, the shrimp with the angel hair oh, and the yeah. capers. That one's going to be around forever. Forever. It's I called make the that. lemon basil shrimp. I make it all the time at home. Come order it. It's it, amazing. It's right? so good. Yeah, it's I okay. don't make it as good as he so does. So we have it on a pizza now at the third location we're managing. It's called the Scampi Pizza at Climate City Brewing Company. It has the shrimp and the capers and the olive oil and the So basil. how did Climate City come about? Um, essentially, like the same way everything in Dustin's life does, he just put it out there mm-hmm. and it it ended up working really well. Um, we are sort of kindred spirits with the original four partners of the establishment that are still there. Um, Climate City has been open for five years. And they just had a run of it. 
They've Mm -hmm. had some rough challenges with management in that space. So um, us coming along is great for them at this time. And it worked well for us because we were ready for another adventure also. Mm -hmm. And it just, it, it happened in the same way that finding a house in three days and yeah. a job in four happened in the Virgin Islands. It's like you just keep following the green lights and then, you know, eventually you you arrive at a place that you never expected. Just meant to be. Yeah. Just and we weren't be. even seeking it out necessarily. It right. just sort of happened. It seems like you guys, you have the vine. That's working great. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. But it seems like there's these two spots in Grants Pass that were needing a boost. And you guys are bringing them back to life. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that they they had life, but that the life didn't, I don't know. I think the way we work our business um, or the way we've really invested in the vine is to build a community space. Mm. It's not just about the fact that there's food or the fact that there's wine or cocktails or that you have a great bartender. It's about the fact that it's basically our second living room. When you come into our space, you feel the warmth and the love that goes into everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that you can always create that or that that every organization has that. And so I don't necessarily think that either of the organizations were the worst for wear without us, mm-hmm. but or maybe they were, but like it's just a different energy that we come into these spaces and we're investing. Like Dustin doesn't do anything halfway. We don't do anything poorly. Anytime we enter into a situation, our goal is to do it to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, and I think that that should be everything, like that's how we approach everything, but um, sometimes the best of your ability is 75% of your maximum ability. I may be distracted by something else, or maybe things are rough at home, or maybe the kids are having a hard time in school, and that means that I'm only operating at 60 of my capacity, 60%. But we're still doing our best. I'm still giving the best that I can into that space. And and I will come back to 100% in that space at certain times. But just managing our focus and really digging into making sure that all of those spaces are infused with the love and passion that we have for that hospitality piece that we talked about is kind of where we're at right now. So good. I think I mentioned Dan Marka almost in every podcast, but I can't help it. Shout out Dan Marka. He told me a long time ago, Danson is the extension of his living room. And that's their goal. And I think that when you have that much love for your guests, like, because you don't invite anybody into your living room that Ooh. you don't care about, right? Yeah. I don't like people. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> that's not true. You you know that's not true. I love I know. I love people. But yeah, you, yeah, if you really have to have a passion for what you're doing to say, come in, sit down, I'm going to bring you some wine and food and you're going to have a great time. Because there's a lot of abuse that goes with it, too. Mm-hmm. A ton. <laughs> it's, not just, it's not all flowers and roses and, and perfect execution. It's turnover, and it's it's staffing. And we went from 19 employees to 50 employees reporting to us in, like, a month and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, it, <laughs> it's And it's not something that no one's ever done before. Like, I don't think that we're, like, some sort of crazy pioneers. Um, it's something that we've never done before. Mm-hmm. And, and so for us, there's that, again, we talked about that exponential growth possibility. What's next? How do we find the next thing that makes us stay stimulated and mm-hmm. growing and changing? And, and, you know, if this piece of the business isn't doing well, how do we either get better or outsource, you know? And so I just, there's so much possibility and there's love and passion and energy. And it's just, it's just a, such a crazy experience. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Win, lose, or draw. I, I think <laughs> win. I mean, it's a win no matter what happens mm-hmm. in our book mm-hmm. because 
I think that we have curated an ability to learn from every experience and, and it's just, it's crazy. It's pretty awesome. Well, again, congratulations. Thank you. Um, but people all over Southern Oregon can go see you guys at the vine wherever. I mean, don't expect either of us to be anywhere at any given time at this stage of the game. (laughs) But the the energy is there. The energy is there. Yeah. Yep. Okay. At the vine at climate city brewing company and at the vine on par. And the Vine on Par is open to the public, which is like a weird thing that people don't know. But this isn't mm. just a, a public relations podcast, Trish. Well, it can be. You're, <laughs> you're my friend. I, I would do anything for you. I appreciate that. Um, but people can go to the Vine on on Par. Yes. Okay. And and it's go a golf have, thing. Go, it, yeah, I figured that. Pa- don't. I was just gonna <laughs> say. I was gonna give you the definition of Par, but I'm not now because I'm not confident in my answer. What would you say? I was, um, I'm curious. Well, there's. Milt is here, so he's doing the weather right now, so maybe he can help me. But each, <laughs> each hole has a par. So, like, if, like, hole one is a par three, you have to get the ball in the hole in three strikes, three swings. That's the goal. Well, yeah, or you could go less than that. And that's it's a birdie. A birdie. See? Or you could shoot, like, a 15 or 20 like I do. Okay. <laughs> Which is me at mini golf, basically. This is like, how many was so, I supposed to get? <laughs> Milt, Milt Radford making a guest appearance on your podcast. Thank you, sir. That's that's never happened before. A guest experience, a guest not appearance. Well, I think people see this. We're actually in the studio, and Milt and our new meteorologist are here working while we're just chatting and shooting the bull about restaurants and being a surrogate. <laughs> Which is probably a little weird, especially when you have two people who are friends. So there's not, yeah. there really aren't any yeah. um, restrictions. Okay, we are going to wrap up. Okay, and I'm going to get to the final three. Oh man, I prepped you on these. You did. Okay, you did. I'm ready. Well, I forget sometimes. Uh, best best <laughs> advice you've ever been given. Uh, so we actually talked about this, um, and I've been thinking about it. That's right. Yeah, we talked about it over lunch. Yeah. Um, and But I thought about it, like, is this really the best advice I've ever been given? And I decided it is. Like, it's stuck with me for all this time. So late in my high school career, I um, was very political. Um, I was in a space exploring, you know, like social norms and 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 how do we do right by the community at large as a global work global community, not to overuse the word. And um, I was having a conflict internally about um, homelessness and giving. And um, I went to a teacher who I had confided in other times also, um, but essentially was like, how do I, how do you give to a homeless person knowing that they might spend it on like drugs or something Mm -hmm. like how do you like you want them to spend it on something that's going to make their life better not make it worse and of course again let's not forget that I'm super naive at this stage of the game um and he said you can't ever make a decision about how that person's going to receive your kindness you can only give the kindness to the best of your ability and then release it knowing that in your heart you've done your best Mm. and what they do with it is up to them, and that's on their conscience, not yours. And what I said when we had lunch, and I think what I've continued to ruminate on about it is that that's actually, you can take that to anything in your life. Mm-hmm. In this conversation, mm-hmm. whatever my best is for you, that's all I can do. And how you take it or how it gets received by others, if they're weirded out by the fact that I was a surrogate for a gay couple or they don't understand why I would want to operate three restaurants and not spend as much time with my kids, mm-hmm. like... I'm doing my best. Mm-hmm. And and what what more can you give? 
how others receive it is not your responsibility. Yeah. No, it's good. We were talking about the final three, and I said that best advice. And Ashley looks at me, and she goes, what's the best advice you've ever been given? And it was totally like no one's ever asked me. So I had to actually think about it. But we went around, and we all said our best advice. Okay. So, so can we turn the tables, and will you tell us what your best advice is? Yeah. The best advice you've ever been given. No one's asked me this, so thank you. I have a couple. <laughs> I, have, I have two. Um, my mom told me a long time ago, because when I was very little, people would say, Trisha, you're so pretty. And I would go, I know. Like, that's how I would respond to I could them. totally see you saying that. Uh-huh. Can I have a drink of your water? Yeah. Um, and she told me at that time, I was maybe five or six, she said, sweetheart, you are a beautiful girl. You're very beautiful on the outside. But if you're not beautiful on the inside, the outside doesn't matter. And that has stuck with me my entire life. I had a college professor, Travis Lynn, he has passed away, um, broadcast, he he was a crazy, insane radio guy. Like that's where kind of the roots of journalism, newspaper mm. and radio. Um, he said, what separates an amateur from a professional is uh, attention to detail and a sense of routine. And those two chunks of advice have just followed with me, personal and professional. And I can say as your friend that I feel like you, that, does a lot to embody like who you are like if I if I had to just try to describe you Mm -hmm. it would very much be that like don't underestimate her because she's beautiful (laughs) both on the inside and the outside and she will you up if you're not careful are we allowed to curse on here um (laughs) but that also you have an incredible attention to detail and and you. you know you described some of your routines and stuff so you've taken all of that advice and and put it into your world and i think that's pretty awesome you're the best (laughs) okay back to you uh if you ever left this place which you have Mm -hmm. what would you miss about it what would you what would bring you back here definitely family Mm -hmm. i think if my family were in a different place it wouldn't it would be different Um, But I also was thinking about the scenery, like just um, it's good that today I had the drive from Grants Pass to Medford because that space is incredible. It's so pretty. I think because we live here, we get so desensitized by it. But we've had so many visitors over the years that everyone's like, holy cow. Like, especially if you make that drive in the morning when the sun is coming through the fog and there's just there's a ton of mountains and and. I just I don't know how to describe it, mm-hmm. but it it is this incredibly picturesque space, and I think that I would I would probably miss the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, Grants Pass is nestled in this really cute little valley where yeah. everywhere you look, you have these incredible mountain vistas. Mm-hmm. It kind of is like a smaller version of what I envision like Sweden to be. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I feel you. I mean, that's why we're still here. I just right. I miss the mountains when I'm not around them. Same. Uh, final meal, final drink. This was a really hard one. I know. Being in in the food and beverage mm-hmm. industry. Um, but I decided that instead of like just one plate, I would want a grazing table full of like organic fruits and vegetables that were just like really perfectly grown and perfectly ripe, with, like raspberries and blackberries mm-hmm. and raw asparagus and then like some grilled vegetables and then maybe some meats and cheeses but like a million things that maybe I had never seen before so that I could experience a bunch of different stuff before and I've had lunch with you and that's how you eat (laughs) (laughs) well good then I'm living the dream it's literally like (laughs) we'll take that and that oh let's do that and that too Yeah, (laughs) totally. And I would want a bunch of people with me so that we could all share the experiences together and talk about it. Is that available in this last meal? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it would have like everyone I loved there too. 
And then we would most definitely be consuming a bottle of the 1983 Le Grand Dame, um, Tete de Champagne, just like all the champagne, basically. If I could put, I'd picked 1983 because that's the year I was born. And I think that having, experiencing something right before you were about to pass that was created the year you were born would be really incredible. Very poetic. Um, but uh, like if there could be a tete de cuvee from every major champagne house in France, I would, I would be like, I could literally die a happy girl after that. Bubbles all around. Bubbles all day. Okay. God, you're, <laughs> you're the best. <laughs> Doesn't that sound great? This is why we're friends. Can we do? Can you guys help make that happen for my birthday? Yeah, I feel like that's a thing. Maybe not the tetsuke part. We could we can skimp on the grazing table and bubbles. Grazing table with all the things and just bubbles. And but super fancy. Can we get dressed up? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> mark it down. <laughs> Everyone, mark your calendars. I'm. I was born in July, so <laughs> that's. Beginning of July, July happen. 9th. It's, it's going to happen. Lots of ice it. for all those bubbles. It's going to be a really good party. Uh, if you're like listening- yours was. Oh, that was an <laughs> epic birthday party. It was good. Yeah. 40. Bring it on. You're th- I'll be 37 this year. 37. Okay. I think we're going to make this happen. I'll call some people. I'll call my people. I think we know some people. Yeah, we do know some people. We do know some people. Could you call Dr. Eisenberg? Yes. I feel like he might be able to rock that out. Yeah. And you know he loves bubbles. I just reached out this week. Bubbles and caviar, actually. That was his last meal, was caviar. Bubbles and caviar. Mm -hmm. Because he says it's so ridiculously indulgent and it's so stupid that it's the best final meal. So stupid. (laughs) Did he actually use the word stupid? Yeah, I think that's good. Or maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to go listen to it back. Ashton Myers, thank you so much. If you are listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. The video versions can be found at ktvl.com and YouTube. One more time, Ashley Myers. Go see all their hard work at The Vine, The Vine on Par, and Climate City Brewing Company. Thanks so much for having me. It was a blast. You're the best, girl. 